Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of October 22nd through the 24th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. First things first, remember that fear is the mind killer and that the spice must flow. If you can't already tell, I'm pretty hyped off of having seen Dune in theaters this past weekend and in IMAX no less. Um, I'm definitely going to save a bit of time at the end of the episode to talk about my impressions, but for now let's hop into this top story with our domestic box office numbers. In first place is the aforementioned Dune, distributed by Warner Brothers and produced by Legendary. Um, I believe Warner Brothers paid 25% of production while Legendary paid 75%. Um, And in addition, there was the whole, you know, kerfuffle last uh, year where I believe Warner Brothers paid even more out to Legendary to let them use it on HBO Max. Um, Anyway, Dune made $41 million in 4,125 theaters per theater average of $9,942. Uh, again, as with every Warner Brothers release this year, it's day and date release on HBO Max, being one of three films this year to have released day and date on Thursday. Uh, the other two on HBO Max, the other two being yeah, In the Heights and Suicide Squad, and then also Zack Snyder's Justice League released on Thursday as well, though did not open in theaters. So this film covers only half of the Frank Herbert 1965 novel, so is this good enough to greenlight a sequel? Now, I, I had originally written this segment of the episode uh, before you know, I ended up recording it, and in the time in between, we got we just got word that Legendary has greenlit a sequel for Dune, so Dune 2 will be coming out October 2023, um, and that's great. Um, and, you know, what, so let's, let's take a look then at, at why, at, you know, the, what, at the numbers and, and how it met, it met, it seems like it met slash exceeded expectations uh, to, to justify being greenlit. Uh, so, you know, the estimates going into the weekend maybe 30 to 35 million dollars you know in past weeks we've seen you know 50 60 even 90 million dollars from other films this one was going to be lower always because of uh the um the hbo max factor here people you know would just watch it on hbo max instead of in theaters so anything above 30 to 35 million dollars would be pretty good um you know and and you know, and, and in addition, you know, Warden the Street was even if Dune didn't get to the same numbers as you know the past couple of weeks has been for opening films, as long as it did well on HBO Max streaming, it would likely be a good sign as well. Now, according to Samba TV, 1.9 million households watched Dune over the weekend that they tracked. Um, now, obviously, that's not every household who actually watched it. The number is likely much higher. Uh, in comparison, Zack Snyder's Justice League, which, again, also opened on Thursday, had a similar number of about $1.8 million. Um, and again, that also did not have the factor of being in theaters, though also was a four-hour movie. Um, Suicide Squad had 2.8 million households, which is definitely one of the higher films on HBO Max. Um, but In the Heights had only 700000 thousand dollars for the thursday to sunday numbers uh in addition you know this number is below wonder woman 1984 and space jam which had at least two million viewers each uh, opening on friday and also below mortal kombat who opened the 3.8 million uh on friday as well as godzilla versus kong opening on wednesday to 3.6 million households again not a perfect indicator but still a good benchmark to show that this is definitely in that top echelon of streaming numbers on hbo max um it's also worth noting that you know all those films that I just mentioned are part of a larger uh, franchise already. And while Dune technically already exists through the books and the 1984 film, um, it's for most general audiences basically a new franchise. So um, you know this is definitely uh, a good win for that to be able to be a 
relatively original work um, or a relatively new franchise for the general audiences and still hit those numbers. Uh, looking at what opened in theaters, um, you know, it opened more than the past four Warner Brothers fil films combined domestically. Uh, Reminiscence, Malignant, Cry Macho, and Many Scenes of Newark have all totaled $35.7 million to date on a combined budget of $178 million. Meanwhile, Dunes Part 1, $165 million, again, made $41 million in its opening week. Weekend. Um, another fun fact, Legendary owns the top two HBO Max Warner Brothers openings this weekend, uh, Dune being their highest of the year, followed by Godzilla vs. Kong at $32 million. Again, ironic given the kerfuffle with Warner Brothers and Legendary last year. Um, honestly, you know, I think at this point we've kind of demonstrated that, you know, that, that $40 million is probably the cap of what will ever happen on a widespread day and date release uh, on a free streaming service. Um, Halloween Kills on Peacock doesn't count. Um, and you know, going into the announcement earlier, earlier today, when I was as of recording this, you know, the the head of, of Warner Brothers and Tarnoff was was saying, you know, will we have a sequel to Dune? If you watch the movie, you know how it ends. I think you know the answer to that. Which you know, the the film said this is only the beginning in the at the ending. Uh, in another interview, he noted the story sets itself up for a sequel. The production is so amazing. The storytelling is compelling. It's not going to be just on box office alone. Um, so you know, we know that it did well, but why did it do well? Right? Um, Dune has famous be known as an unadaptable novel just because of you know the amount of world building it's kind of on the scale of if not more so than game of thrones right um and that had to be adapted into a multiple uh a, a multi-season uh, television series um not not just into a single imagine trying to condense game of thrones or even part of game of thrones into a single book that just wouldn't be possible because of all the moving pieces there's a lot of moving pieces frankly here in this do not adaptation that didn't get adapted for for you know the sake and you know going back to the 1984 David Lynch adaptation that made only 27 million dollars on a 45 million dollars production budget so this was going to be a, a tough sell um and you know that director Dennis Villeneuve um has you know after all, he had also had a financial flop in his most recent film, Blade Runner 2049, another beloved sci-fi classic um, that, you know, it made $92 million domestically and 258 globally, but on a budget of $185 million, which when you factor in, you know, the cost of advertising and what, that was definitely not worth it. Um, you know, side news, you know, Dune does beat uh, Blade Runner 2049's $32 million opening to be uh, Villeneuve's uh, highest opening weekend in his career. Now, in a podcast interview I listened to, you know, he noted that he had wanted to film the two parts of the story back to back, um, but because of the financial failure of Blade Runner twenty forty nine, he was on thin ice, and so you know the the studio wasn't willing to invest. They were willing to invest in him as a director, but not to give him two films off the bat. Um, which you know he admits that the fact that he didn't get to film back to back probably was for the better uh, in the end for his own health and sanity. Uh, anyway, I'll get into what I think worked about the film and what didn't as an adaptation later on. But again, the audience is definitely responsible. Critics like it at an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, but also has a 91% audience verified score and an A- on CinemaScore. Um, one thing I think that did help is actually kind of a similar thing that helped Godzilla vs. Kong do pretty well. Um, is that kind of like that big screen factor? Sir, you know, it's being on HBO Max, you know, definitely helped with awareness, and there are definitely people who didn't see it in theaters, you know, because they could see it on HBO Max. Um, but, you know, the fact that, you know, 
the the cinematography that that Villeneuve you know incorporates into his films and the kaiju ness, the big monster nature of Godzilla vs Kong, made it so that hey, this is not a film you want to see on a small screen on your phone or even on your living room TV. You want to see this on the biggest screen with the biggest sound system possible. Um, and go and basically that's what encouraged people to you know maybe pause it and go see it in theaters or finish it, go see it in theaters um, at least for at least once, right? Um, so I I think that definitely helped here. And opening numbers kind of back this up. You know, the opening day numbers for Dune so that about 24% of the total number from that opening day were IMAX screens specifically, uh, which is a relatively high ratio for a blockbuster film. I don't have an exact number, but I know that it's definitely not a, a quarter of films, you know, a quarter of the revenue coming in from uh, IMAX screens. Okay, so where does Dune go from here now that it actually does have a sequel, right? How, well, how will Dune 1 perform for the rest of its run? Now, HBO Max films have a wide range of multipliers, right? The ratio between opening weekend and the final number. Uh, the lowest, Mortal Kombat, has a 1.81x multiplier, though also the highest stream of screen, uh, screen, um, uh, streaming, streaming numbers. Um, while Tom and Jerry, you know, the kids' film, ended up having a 3.26x multiplier, which is, you know, pretty high. So a 2x multiplier, right? Let's say it, it, it does the bare minimum. I think, you know, better than Mortal Kombat. 2x multiplier will put it to $82 million. Not great, but, you know, also not not bad. Um, a 2.5x multiplier, which is probably right in the middle, would get to maybe a 102.5 million total. You know, costing the $100 million mark and, you know, getting and potentially being farther than what Godzilla vs. Kong ended up would be pretty good. Um, and then a 3x multiplier, which probably be a little bit out of reach, but, you know, never, could potentially happen, gets us to $123 million. Now, as far as next weekend, things are looking kind of rough, uh, which isn't going to help. Estimates suggest a 60% drop next weekend. Now, there are a lot of factors for that drop. Uh, one, again, HBO Max films have about a 50% plus drop. Godzilla vs. Kong, for example, had a 57% drop in its second weekend versus the first. Um, you know, because, you know, even if people did have the factor of, oh, I want to go see it in screens, you're just going to, you know, if you want to see it again, repeat viewers, maybe some people will go see it in theaters again, but, you know, IMAX is expensive, right? And so, you know, maybe see it once on IMAX, but then see the rest of the times, you know, on HBO Max at home, potentially, right? Um, so that's one factor here. Two, as much as Dune is doing surprisingly well with general audiences, there's still a good chance that it was somewhat preloaded from pre-sales, right? You know, the fans, the people who had wanted to see this film, be they uh, sci-fi fans, Dune fans, Dennis Villeneuve fans, um, definitely, you know, I think definitely had like a bit of a, a load-on factor for the pre-sales. Um, and then three, you know, it is Halloween at this coming weekend, the first actually since the pandemic last year, and it's actually, you know, and, and, and also a rare occasion where Halloween takes place on the actual weekend itself which is going to de you know, deflate um, deflate box office numbers um, since it's a holiday where people are going to be out and about instead of going to the theaters. So um, you know, that's going to, definitely going to impact performance as well. Hence, you know, the higher than average 60% drop. That would put us, um, I believe, at about $16.4 million next weekend. Um, what, what sort of help it, though, despite the high drop, is that it's going to have another weekend of owning the IMAX and large format screens before The Eternal comes out November 5th for those. So, so far, combined with the new openings in China this weekend, more on that later, as well as the UK this weekend and the first wave of openings about a month ago, Dune now sits at about $182 million overseas in 75 markets and 223 mark total combining with domestic worldwide. So likely, I think it's going to aim for maybe that three, 300 million lifetime or so. Um, Australia should be the last major market, though, as it's all the way out in December. 
Now, for second place, Halloween Kills is in its second weekend, dropping a massive 71% in 3,727 theaters for 14 point four, to $14.4 million for a per theater average of $3,877. Pretty steep, but honestly, as a horror film, we kind of saw that coming. Uh, the 2018 Halloween film dropped 59% in normal times. Uh, and, and again, this was also on uh, Peacock, um, though again, I don't think that had that much of an impact there. Uh, in addition to the $73 million it's made thus far domestically, uh, it's at seventeen million dollars abroad, putting in fifty-three markets, putting at ninety million dollars lifetime. Third place goes in week three to note to the third week of No Time to Die, dropping forty-nine percent uh, to twelve million dollars in three thousand eight hundred and seven theaters per theater average of three thousand two hundred and five dollars, and running total domestically of one hundred twenty million dollars. Combined with four hundred three million dollars abroad in seventy-two markets, Bond now sits at five hundred twenty-four million dollars, crossing the five hundred million mark worldwide for fifth place in the global annual box office, the second Hollywood film to do so behind F9. Um, it will open in China next weekend, and if it does well, should be able to cross the $600 million mark easily. Whether or not it'll get to $700 million is TBD. Uh, in fourth place, we have the fourth week of Venom Let It Be Carnage, dropping 44% to $9.3 million in 3,513 theaters, per theater average of $2,648. Running domestic total so far is $182 million. Domestic box office sits at $170 million in 53 markets. Uh, no China... Uh, release date yet um, so a lifetime total of 352 million with a bunch more markets still left to open Finally, wrapping up the top five, we have the newest animated film, Ron's Gone Wrong, from 20th Century Animation. Going wrong indeed, opening to only $7.3 million in 3,560 theaters for a per theater average of $2,051. Compared to the recently opened Adam's Family 2, opening to $17 million on a day-and-date VOD release, not a great look. Uh, maybe it'll have good legs, it's animation family-friendly after all, but I don't have a great feeling about it, especially since it's not even on another streaming service at the moment. Um, it seems well-liked enough, 79% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 95% audience, A on cinema score, which might help. Um, about another $10 million abroad puts it at, at you know, $17 million lifetime. No budget I can find, and this is the first production of a new animation studio, Locksmith Animation, but other animated films from 20th Century Animation over the past few years, such as 2019's Spies in Disguise or 2017's Ferdinand, cost about $100 million to make total, so this one's going to probably not big break break even at this point now outside the top five the other story this week shows that it is timothy salome's world and we're just living in it uh, in addition to having dune be the highest grocer for the weekend um salome stars in wes anderson's latest film the french dispatch opening with the, the highest per theater average of the pandemic era to dollars per theater per theater uh beating out Venom's to $21,000, um, total of about $1.3 in 52 theaters. Um, it goes wide next weekend to about 600 theaters. And while it is the highest per theater average to date, which is definitely worth noting um, post-pandemic, it still is well below the 200000 per theater average of, of Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel pre-pandemic. 
Now, in less happy news for award-type films, The Last Duel from Ridley Scott dropped a very steep 57% to $2 million in its second weekend, winning a total of $8.5 million domestically, pacing behind A24's similarly themed but also much cheaper medieval drama Green Knight starring Dev Patel at the same point in time. Um, definitely not going to make that $100 million budget back. Similarly disappointing, The Suicide Squad ends its run with $55.8 million after 10 weeks for a 2.13x multiplier. Remember, that Suicide Squad, the first one's opening day was $64.9 million. So the first Suicide Squad made in one day what the enti- or this, the Suicide Squad from James Gunn made in its entire run. Pretty disappointing. Overall, total box office this weekend dips below $100 million, breaking that streak we had going, but still a respectable $95 million total. Only $10 million away from the same weekend, pre-pandemic in 2019. No new major releases that weekend in comparison, just week two of Maleficent 2. Uh, next weekend is, as we noted, the expansion of French Dispatch. In addition, there are a number of new releases. Searchlight is finally releasing their horror film Antlers. Uh, box Office Pro has this at 3 to $8 million. I think it was supposed to release before the pandemic but got delayed. Uh, Focus Features is releasing Edgar Wright's latest film, Last Night in Soho. Uh, box Office Pros have it from 6.5 to, 6. to $11.5 million, though Deadline says more like, like $5 million. Um, Sony's Stage 6 Films is releasing drama, A Mouthful of Air, no forecast here. Um, and also Funimation Films is releasing the third My Hero Academia film that opened earlier this year in Japan. There's a good chance we'll get an anime movie in the top 10 at least next weekend, if not top 5. No forecast from Box Office Pros, but the last Academia film that opened in 2019, opening on a Wednesday, had a three-day weekend Friday to Sunday of $5.8 million, $9.3 million over the five-day weekend. Before we get to the international and China numbers, though, a word from our friends at the ContraZoom pod, where they go back and forth about film. This week, in honor of Halloween, Dakota is looking at the genre of folk horror, specifically the unholy trinity of three British films that helped set the tone for the genre, 1968's Witchfinder General, 1971's The Blood on Satan's Claw, and 1973's The Wicker Man. Now, I don't have any fun box office facts for these three films specifically, but some related films I do have numbers on. In 2006, Nicolas Cage started in a remake of Wicker Man that was a bit of a flop, making $37.7 million on a budget of $40 million, but is more than worth it if only for the Nicolas Cage that came from it, memes that came from it, not the beast. Uh, slightly more successful in recent years is folk horror film Midsommar, which made $27 million domestically after opening to $6.5 million, and $19 million abroad for a lifetime total of $46.8 million off of a budget of only $9 million. Anyway, I'm a big watch when it comes to horror films, uh, so here's Dakota. Hi, this is Dakota, host of ContraZoom Pod, where we go back and forth about film. I am obsessed with movies. I could talk about them all day, and if you're like me, then you'll love my podcast. Every week we take a new topic, whether it's ranking a director's filmography, covering major film festivals, or getting way into Oscar season. While every week is different, we do have some recurring topics, like our Make Remake series looking at an original film and its remake, or our very popular A History Of program, taking an in-depth look, looking at some of the biggest companies involved in film, including Criterion, A24, and Neon. It isn't all super serious topics, though, as we always need to play catch-up with all the hottest Marvel Cinematic Universe news and general pop culture goings-on. There's something for every kind of movie lover, whether you want reviews, interviews, or in-depth conversations. ContraZoom Pod is found on all podcatcher apps, and visit ContraZoomPod.com for even more information.
All right, looking internationally, No Time to Die has crossed into the top 10 of UK grossing films, landing at number 8, beating out Lion King and Toy Story 3, with about 78 million pounds total. Uh, that means for the first time in a while, a Harry Potter film is no longer in the top 10 films of the UK. Uh, only about 13 million more pounds, or 17.8 million US dollars, to beat Avenger Endgame and cross into the top 5. That said, after three weeks at the top, No Time to Die did see the top uh, weekend this week to Dune. Now looking at China, first checking in on Lake Changjin. Uh, officially, numbers from China suggest it made $32 million this weekend for a running total of $829.9 million so far. With another week to go in its official time in theaters, though I wouldn't be surprised if this gets extended. This is officially good enough for a new number one film at a 2021 box office, beating out the Chinese film Hi Mom all the way back in February in the Lunar New Year at $822 million. By my source, it's about $5 million US away from beating Wolf Warriors 2, China's all-time greatest uh, number one box office film. Other sources say, you know, because of exchange rates and whatnot, it's closer to maybe 40 million US dollars away from getting to that number. Um, another 14 million past that uh, for the highest Chinese film made ever due to Wolfwalkers getting, you know, some money from abroad as well. Uh, overall, in the past week, Lake Changjin made about $60 million, dropping about 50% from the week prior. So another 50% drop in this coming seven-day week uh, would net it another $30 million. Um, so I could definitely see it getting to beat Wolf Warriors 2 by the end of its run. Uh, unlikely it's going to get to the $900 million mark at this point, uh, which is where the conversation would need to begin for it to potentially beat The Force Awakens as the single highest market, market box office film. But nevertheless, congratulations to Lake Changjin for taking the new crown of the 2021 box office. Now, of course, it will have some competition. Uh, obviously, you know, Spider-Man No Way Home is you know, still all the way in, in December, and we'll see how that does. Um, but more immediately, Dune also opened in China, opening to $21.8 million uh, this past weekend, after forecast had it maybe $15 to $20 million total, so not bad. Now, that said, Mao Yan, the IMDb equivalent in China, their reviews are in the 8.1 range, which is actually kind of low for the platform. Generally, general audiences want something more more like a nine plus score for good legs. Um, there was about, apparently a boycott for the for the film due to having too many 3D screens and not enough 2D screens, but I think it will be able to leg it out to China for maybe three thirty five million dollars or so, according to Mao Yan. Not the super big breakout I'm sure Legendary was hoping for, but still respectable and helpful for the larger three three hundred million dollar goal worldwide. In third place in China, My Country, My Parents in week three made $5.2 million to add to a $221 million running total. In fourth place, the comedy film Knock Knock made $4.2 million in its debut, which with previews brings the number to $6 million. And then finally, Romance Love After Love debuted to number five at $3.3 million this weekend. Again, Blake Changjin does have competition from Dune this weekend. Next weekend, both Dune and Changjin will face competition from Bond himself as No Time to Die premieres in China. No ideas on what the forecasted open will be. I saw some numbers suggesting maybe something a little bit lower, maybe about $20 million or so. Uh, the last two Bond films, Skyfall in 2012 and Spectre in 2015, made over their entire run uh, $59 million and $84 million respectively. But again, those were over nine and six years ago respectively. So at this point, I think China's appetite for films has grown so much that this could potentially, you know, do better than those films. Though so we'll see. 
Anyway, turning to a film that isn't likely going to get a China release, The Eternals. Uh, we already talked about how the pre-sales in the first 24 hours were pretty good for this film, being the top pre-selling film in that time frame post-pandemic. As of shortly after last episode, 16 days before release, it was about 5 million total pre-sales sold. Uh, with a budget of $200 million or so, reported by Variety, Deadline reports that the expected opening from Disney and Marvel is about $80 million. A bit on the conservative side from what I've seen out there from other analysts, but to be expected that that the, you know, the house would want to undersell itself for positive press later on, potentially. Now, that being said, the review embargo has lifted this past weekend. As of writing, the, rotten, the critics' tomatoes meter score is only 76%. Still fresh so far, but also the fifth lowest of the MCU, tying Avengers Age of Ultron and beating out only Iron Man 2, Incredible Hulk, and Thor Dark World. Notably, all films with less than 80% on Rotten Tomatoes in the MCU did not have the director come back again, though some say that's mostly coincidence. Some of the directors didn't want to come back themselves. Um, on Metacritic, it currently sits at a 60, uh, which is even worse, as the only films in the MCU it beats are Thor, Iron Man 2, and Thor Dark World, just being barely below The Incredible Hulk. It seems that the major complaints are the pacing of the film, being much longer than your average Marvel film, as well as not being a typical Marvel film, which, you know, given that you have Oscar winner Chloe Zhao at the helm, I think should be expected, but who knows if this will resonate with general audiences. Nevertheless, we'll just have to wait to see whether or not the general audience picks up what Chloe Zhao is putting down um, and whether or not, you know, the critically will it be critically acclaimed enough to get Kevin Feige m more above the line Oscar nominations beyond the expected visual effects nomination. Anyway, before we wrap up the show, I wanted to share my review of Dune. Um, I ended up seeing it in the U.S.'s largest IMAX screen at the Lincoln Center here in NYC on Sunday afternoon. Definitely the only way I really want to see any Nolan, Villeneuve, or Kaiju films in the future. So, you know, high level, right? First off, as a standalone film, right? I personally have read the first Dune book. Um, this was probably, I want to say, maybe like three or four years ago. So not the freshest in my mind. And my brother actually, when he came and visited, took the book back with him uh, before I could read it again for here. Not that I would have had time to with how busy I am. Um, so my, I definitely did a quick look over the Wikipedia summary just to refresh myself on things going in. And, you know, it all definitely came back. But, you know, as a standalone film, somebody who never had seen you know anything Dune before, never read anything Dune before, I think from that perspective, I would say it probably does a decent job of setting up the world and factions. You know, I think if you could follow Game of Thrones in its heyday, you could probably follow along with Dune, um, you know. Game of Thrones was like, what, a dozen different factions or so going on. Dune, you basically only have three real factions, maybe four factions going on. Um, I saw one comment online that, you know, um, House of Atreides and House Harkonnen are probably going to be uh, the, uh, the Lannisters versus the Stark of the new era, which I think Warner Bros. would be happy with, of, given how you know much Game of Thrones has kind of receded from the public eye um, after the final season. But anyway, back to Dune. Um, I think, you know... Again, part of what made Dune so difficult is that there's a lot of different pieces moving on, right? Dune is, a, is a, essentially a story about this one specific portion in history, but it was this huge back, you know, millennia's worth of history going back in, technology that Frank Herbert kind of came up with, um, and, and, and different like religions and social movements that kind of all feed up to this particular moment in the first book, basically. Um, and, you know, trying to adapt all that on screen would be difficult. I think Villeneuve and his screenwriters did a great job of getting the core essential parts of it Um at least that a general audience fan could follow along. Um, yes, there is some very specific, like, you know, some specific world building that needs to be done, and they do a decent job. They take their time of building it out and not rushing it. 
I definitely think, you know, obviously, uh, it needs that part two for the conclusion. But again, we knew that from the get-go. And, you know, that the biggest complaint, I think, about Dune is that there's not enough Dune. So happy to see that the uh, sequel is coming up. Um, and, you know, even at two and a half hours long, it did not feel dragged on or rushed at all. You know, there are definitely some films. I definitely remember uh, Blade Runner 2049. At some point, I was, like, looking at my phone and seeing, like, how much more film is there here? Um, here, I think the pace was uh, definitely a lot, you know, brisker um, along, even if it didn't feel, but it didn't feel rushed. Now, as an adaptation, right, there are a bunch of different themes. I've been reading a lot of thought pieces this past weekend uh, just to, like, kind of, you know, bring out, like, what, is, what are the themes of Dunes again and so on. And, you know, I, I will say I think it leans more, I think Villeneuve's trying to go for, you know, there is, you know, there's a whole thing about Dune being a hero's journey, but also a subversion of the hero's journey. I think that is what Villeneuve is kind of picking up on the most here. Um, you know, the question of destiny and a, you know, messianic figure in Paul Atreides, you know, embracing his destiny or rejecting his destiny. What's he going to do with his destiny um, over these two films? And I think that that's kind of what he's leaning into. You know, people. A lot of people take Dune as an ecological film by talking about you know the relationship with the environment. Um, I definitely don't think that that was as much touched on here. Um, you know, and you know, I, and again, some of the cooler world building stuff. I think in particular for me, I really missed the Mentats. There was a brief you know elaboration on what they did, but a lot of it, you know, a lot of the really cool stuff about the way the spice works, right? How exactly the spice work doesn't really isn't really explained in the film. And again, probably for the better, better. Because, um, you know, even any dude will admit it, it's just so much to try to carry on. Um, but I think, you know, they sacrifice that adaptation to really build more heart. You know, you know, I think, you know, without, you know, I, I, on one hand, Dune is a story of like these big movements, these big trends and themes within this, you know, fictional world history. But at the same time, you know, it, it, it wouldn't work if you didn't have the story of Paul and Jessica and his family, you know, that very personal story of what they're going through work. And I think this film does a good job of setting up to make it that those characters are likable and relatable, um, you know, despite how unrelatable the world is. Um, visually, of course, oh, also one more bit on the world building. Um, I loved the designs of the uh, ornithopters. I think those are probably my favorite part of the film. Um, and also, you know, we'll say that, you know, the way that they use the, the the sealed effects and, and all the technology that they have, you know, I saw, you know, being Filipino, I was definitely hyped to read some pieces about how they're incorporating Filipino martial arts in the fighting scenes here, um, which were pretty cool. Um, anyway, visually, I think this is a masterpiece, but we do that going in. You know, all of the new films are basically masterpieces. Um, again, see this on the biggest screen possible. I implore you, IMAX, if at all possible. Um, Sound-wise, I think uh, Hans Zimmer's score um, is also stellar as well. Um, the only nitpick I have, especially if you do go to IMAX, ironically, is that you know some parts of it are just you know the sound mixing? Maybe it was just my theater. Maybe it was something else. But you know some of, especially if you haven't seen Dune before and you don't you know know the um, if you don't know some of the unique vocabulary, you might get a little bit lost. As you know, there's some bits where maybe whispered or whatnot that you don't really hear clearly, right? And I think that um, the sound mixing maybe could use a little bit of work. But otherwise, I think the score is great. Um, and you know, otherwise, and if you do see it, maybe just go back and watch it with subtitles for those scenes. Acting-wise, you know, I think and it's not, not, nothing particularly weak. I don't think there's something that maybe... I wouldn't say any of them are Oscar-worthy um, in terms of nominations, but um, I think, you know, Salome is definitely a serviceable, um, satisfactory Paul. Um, I think for me, my favorite characters acting were Rebecca Ferguson as Jessica, especially when she used the voice. Um, and then Jason Momoa um, as Duncan is, is super likable as well. Um, also, Oscar Isaac's beard, but again, that's Oscar Isaac and his beard. 
Um, you know, I think you know production design was great. I already mentioned the ornithopters. Um, I think the still suits would make it for some pretty dope cosplay, especially with the masks and everything. Um, and yeah, the sandworms were just. You know, I just love the sandworms and, and, and can't wait to see more of them in the next film. Um, in any case, you know, my rating for Dune, a 5 out of 5. The spice must flow. The spice is flowing. And remember, fear is the mind killer. Anyway, I think that's about it for this episode. Suit me ideas for those I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. Find us so on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review or at the very least tell a friend that any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, which lets me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on. Links to all of that in our show notes. Numbers used in the show come from dnumbers.com. Intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production provided by Ninja Boy Media. Till next time, this has been the Box Office Watch. Remember, our watch goes on. Oh, 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 oh,